come to the uh, scripture now, let me ask you please to, to bow with me to pray. Uh, Father in heaven, again, we have in our very hands right before our eyes um, you speaking to us. May we never take that for granted, but see these moments when we can consider these things together as um, your grace to us. So please help us now. May we listen well. Um, May we apply it in such a way that's glorifying to you and that is most certainly gain to us. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've read this passage of Psalm 25 responsively. Thus, I want to just read one verse of what we read and that be our place of consideration this morning primarily. And that is verse 14 of Psalm 25. Verse 14 of Psalm 25. Hear the word of God. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. Let me read that again. The friendship, um, some versions may have uh, the secret or the mystery, other versions, that the Lord confides in those who fear him. This version, the English Standard Version, puts it, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. Now, as, uh, as we begin this fall, I want to do something a little different uh, than what I I often do uh, similar but, but different. That is to say that I'm not going to take up a particular book of the Bible right now and go through it in consecutive Sundays. Um, um, but rather I want to take a biblical topic, not an issue, but a biblical topic, something that I think will help us put everything else in context. And I want to do that over the course of the next number of weeks. It may take us, I hope at least, I trust, until Advent. And then we'll kind of spin from this uh, during Advent season. I've done this kind of thing before. We've taken various passages uh, over the years uh, through the Pentateuch at one time, and other times I've uh, followed some exegetical rabbit trails um, and picked up things on prayer, picked on things. I remember after we considered Ecclesiastes, uh, we worked through the, the heart and, and, and the, being the wellspring of life. It's just a number of sermons from that kind of idea. But, but I want to take up something that uh, is pervasive in the scripture, and that is this idea, this principle, this concept concept of covenant. Concept of covenant. You notice from this particular verse, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. So the question being, what is there about knowing God's covenant that leads to intimacy, friendship, with him. When we talked about that, when we read through the responsive reading, I used the expression the unthinkable. That is, how can any of us think that we could ever be friends with God? But yet, it's here. He says, the Lord confides in those who fear him. The, the, the secrets of the, Lord's are, of the Lord are with those who fear him. And so he makes known his covenant in such a way that we end up bound to him. We end up in relationship with him. We end up uh, uh, with him in a relationship that the scripture refers to as an intimate friendship. 
How can that be? That's what I want to take up, this idea of covenant and how then it, it leads to that. Let me give you some reasons why, because you can follow my train of thought. Number one is that when we were thinking through Psalm 119, we realized the way of blessedness or happiness was by way of knowing and obeying the law of God. Well, that law of God, that concept of the law of God is very much akin to this idea of covenant. And so as we learn about covenant, then we'll also be able to think through and understand how it is that we live this life that the psalmist spoke of in Psalm 119 as being a life that is, that is blessed. Secondly, this. And many have said that uh, this idea of covenant is the organizing principle of the whole scripture. Um, Charles Spurgeon, a 19th century Baptist preacher, put it like this. He said, the doctrine of the covenant lies at the root of all true theology. It has been said that he who well understands the distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace is a master of divinity. I'm persuaded that most of the mistakes which men make concerning the doctrines of the scriptures are based upon fundamental errors with regard to the covenants of law and the covenants of grace. So Spurgeon, uh, a great man of God, said that this was an organizing principle of all of scripture. It, it's the root of, of really understanding God. So, so that's why I want to take it up. Now I did take this up about 10 years ago on our Wednesday night suppers, but I did it with an eye, just as kind of an overview, but with an eye of bringing it into the context of worship. A number of you over the last year have actually asked me to do this, and so that's what began my, my thinking about it. And a number who weren't there then, who listened to some of those messages, said, oh, why don't we do that on a Sunday morning? Now, when I shared 10 years ago, I made mention of this. And this is somewhat irrelevant to you, but I'm going to share it anyway, just so you know from whence I come, and that is, that of all the things I know, which aren't very many, but of all the things that I know about the scripture, this, for me, is most foundational. I can honestly say that about 35 years ago, I was seven. <laughs> uh, about 35 years ago, uh, coming to understand covenant in the context of God and us, covenant and God's dealing with his creation, literally transformed my life. I grew up in the church, just like many of you, and certainly our kids in our church. I grew up in a good church. I grew up learning the right kinds of things and all of that. No doubt it was exposed even to this whole notion of covenant and all of that. But, you know, quite frankly, as we grow up as kids, we don't always grasp everything that we're taught. Sometimes what we teach our children is some, somewhat what we do in premarital counseling. You know, you listen to it, but you don't yet have a category in your brain to apply it. But it's there. And so it's good to be there. And then, so testimonies of our kids, even as they go off to college and so forth, they go, oh, well, I finally get it. Well, yeah, it's not utterly new. It seems new. They've been hearing it all their lives. But, but now they've reached a place in their life cognitively. They've reached a place in their life mature-wise. They've reached a place in their life in their relationship with God and, and experiences and all of that. Where, and now it's collided, come together. And sometimes it clicks at 17. Sometimes it clicks at 20. Sometimes at 30. Sometimes who knows what. But, but, but what, it, it comes together. And, and, and that, for me, is a time when it came together. Uh, I, as I've shared with you before, I won't go into all the details, had an accident with my eyes so that both of my eyes had to be covered for about a week. And a friend of mine, to keep me occupied and keep me sane, gave me some messages that were on cassette tapes. 
I'll explain what that is to some of you later. Um, at least they weren't eight tracks. Uh, I know, I know. Connie has some of those. There you go. But um, on Covenant, and as I listened and listened and listened, it's as if all of the stepping stones from Genesis to Revelation appeared. And I said, oh, yes. And so again, just from a very personal basis, it's important for us to see it. And as I, as, as I did that, and, and, and I share this not only by way of something biographical, autobiographical, but also because this is, I really think, the point, the point for all of us. It was the point for me, but, but certainly I think it's the point for all of us. And as I read others who write about covenant, as God reveals himself through the scripture, they say, these are the things that should arise out of it. And it did for me. Number one is a great sense of purpose, seeing that that God had purpose for his creation and, and through his creation uh, woke me up in my mid-twenties to see that, in fact, there was purpose for my life. I saw how I fit into all of that which God was doing, all right? Now, please understand that was not a call to ministry or any of that just a regular guy back then. I was in graduate school in Tallahassee, Florida, studying economics of all things. And so, it wasn't any of that. It was just I saw purpose in life. I, I, I saw how my life fit into the purpose of God for all creation. Secondly, in the midst of that, it gave me a great sense of assurance that I really belonged to God. That I had access to Him. That He knew me. That I could know him. The classic configuration of that by way of God's covenant is his expression where he speaks to his people and says, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the very essence of God making covenant, God cutting covenant with his people. And I came to know that. And I saw in the midst of all of this, yes, I belong to God. I have access to him. Passages of scripture started just leaping off the page to me. Very common ones. This wasn't something I found anything obscure in the scripture. I don't know what that means. It was the common stuff that I was able to see in light of all of this. For instance, the classic Romans 8.28 and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I began to really see that, that in the purposes of God, he was sovereign over all things in such a way to bring good for those who he had called to be his and those who therefore loved him. I said, yes, okay. I then began to fit pieces in my life together to realize God is at work, even in these very difficult things of my life. And if you knew my life at that time, there were some difficult things in my life. And I began to see even those very difficult things, those key weaknesses in my own life. Those were days when I ate my lunch in the car because I was afraid to be around other people. Catch some irony here. Now, um, but to be able to see how the pieces fit into this purpose of God for my life and gave me great assurance that because I belonged to him, 
then he is at work bringing good. Even this verse, verse 18, for I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed for us. And I begin to think that through. There's something that is to come for which this moment in time is important. Somehow this moment in time is important to compare to that moment in time so that that moment in time is glorious. And so I began to see all of that as well. Romans 5 verse 1 just jumped off the page. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I said, yes, I have peace with God. I needn't run from him anymore. Even though as a believer I can face him with A confession of my own sin. I can be honest about that, who I am before him. I needn't run because I have peace with him. He's made peace with Jesus. He's declared me to be righteous as a believer in him. Therefore, I needn't run. I can come now. I needn't hide. I can come now. And I can be open and I can be honest about who I really am before him and receive his forgiveness and his then transformation in the context uh, of our lives. Thus, this Covenant realization, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, um, transformed my life. Now, we speak these days, uh, if you read some things, you'll, we, we speak, we read a great deal of this notion of a meta-narrative. That's sort of a buzzword that exists these days. Nobody really knows what that means because, because we just use words like that and everybody feels really intellectual. Uh, so if you look up meta-narrative in the dictionary, you'll find a definition that's not very helpful because it says that it's a narrative about a narrative. And you go, thank you very much. But when we talk about a meta-narrative, we're talking about the big mer- na- uh, narrative. We're talking about the big story. We're talking about, but the, about that narrative, about that explanation, about that story, about that history, that everything else fits into. That is to say, if you understand this, then the particulars, the pieces, fit into that one. And you can't really understand the pieces until you understand that one. I don't know if you've had experience in people's lives and you first meet them and you find out these little facts of their lives and you scratch your head and you go, that's really strange. But then you learn about their whole life. And then you put those particulars in that whole story of their life and you go, "Eh, I get it now. It's not so strange after all. But you see, once we learn this big unifying narrative or story as it's called, I don't like the word story personally because it's probably my generation. Story to me sounds like something made up. And people says, tell me your story. I think they want me to lie to them. <laughs> but, but I know they don't. And so I, I try not to. But, um, but this sense of this, this, this whole big picture, this unifying narrative that holds everything else together. And until we get that, you see, it's very hard to understand the particular pieces I've found in my own life and still find, unless I'm thinking rightly, that it's hard for me to understand the particulars of my life unless I understand the big picture as well. And so when we talk about covenant, we're talking about big picture because this idea of covenant really underlies this this meta-narrative, this unifying story of life. I could say it's the meta-narrative of of, of the whole scripture, but but when I say it that way, I I don't want you to, to miss the fact that what I'm saying is that it's the big picture of all of life because this is God's revelation to us. So this is it. There isn't another. This one's it. This comes from the very word of God. And 
so we speak of this narrative, we're talking about that big picture that God reveals. This is what he's doing. This is how we're to understand everything else in the context of our lives. Now, we can say it like this as well. As we move from Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, we move through the history of what God is doing with his creation. We can put it like this, that it's, it's one of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Okay, put those four words in your head. We'll be saying them a bit in the next number of months. But it's helpful to think. Think of all of life in the context of this idea of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. That's what we have in the history of God's creation. We start with creation. And, and by that, we mean that there is one outside of creation who's responsible for all of creation. One who's outside of it, exists outside of it, who is responsible for all of it. He is the creator. He has made it. He's the author of it. And there, I'm not going to get into whether it was in literal six days or whether it wasn't or any of that. But simply to say... There is one outside of creation who's responsible. He's the author, and as the author of it all, he has authority over it all. Therefore, as creator, he has the authority to define how all of the elements within the creation are to be. He defines everything. He's the author of it. It's his story, if you will. And so he defines everything. This is what that is, and this is what that is, and this is what that is. This is who you are, and this is what you are to do. All those kinds of things. He, he's the author. He's responsible for it. There's no life apart from him. Nothing created outside of him. And he defines it all. And as the author, the one with authority, he's the one who judges it all according to his standards. He has the right to define it, he has the right to judge it because he made it. It's, it's his, all right? So that's a sense of creation. We need to understand, if we're going to understand anything about life, that there is a creator, there is a definer, and that creator and definer is not us. He exists outside of us, and he tells us who we are, what everything is and is to be, all right? Then this idea of fall, that's not a season of the year or a clumsy accident when we say fall. It means, that's the, the, this Genesis 3, the sin of Adam and Eve. Crucial for us to understand. Creation made good. Fall, curse comes. Why? Because that which God has made, the crown of his creation, Adam and Eve, uh, rebelled against him. They, uh, being our representatives in rebelling against him, then brought curse upon all on the earth that would come after them. So it's important for us to understand all of life in the midst of that. Because we see then rebellion and sin and evil and misery and all of that in the midst of that one event. There it is. But then in the midst of that as well, we realize that God laid out for all of his creation a plan of redemption. That is to reverse the curse. That is to reverse all that fell. Now, we remember it from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when he speaks of one who's going to come from the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent and all of that. But this plan of redemption that takes place. And then we see that redemptive plan coming into fulfillment in Jesus, the Redeemer, the one who comes. 
And then a day is to come when all of that will be brought to, to fruition, a day of consummation, when all of it will be brought to fruition, when, when, when everything will be set right, when the earth will be renewed to be as it would have been had Adam never sinned. All right? So, so that's the, Now, I say that to say, underlying all of that is this notion of covenant. That's what we're going to be considering. That's what we're going to be uh, exploring in the weeks, in the weeks to come. Now, um, the the psalmist lays this out again in, in this very remarkable kind of uh, kind of fashion. He says to us that the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him, and He makes known to them uh, His. His covenant. Now, there's a sense in which, as the psalm begins, uh, he he he, de- he declares his trust in God. Verse one: To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Oh my God, I trust in you. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Um, so he, he he begins by putting his by making this declaration of trust in God. But then this sense, almost feel a certain sense before he gets over it, of insecurity. So I trust in you, but don't let me be put to shame. Now, when you and I think of that word, be put to shame or being ashamed, we often simply think of being embarrassed. We've done something foolish, so we're embarrassed. Or having a sense of guilt. We've done something wrong, and so we're embarrassed because now we have this sense of guilt. And that's a valid use of that expression. But there's a nuance here, and the nuance is what's actually picked up, really should be picked up in this particular passage. Whereas... The psalmist isn't just simply saying, God, don't embarrass me by our relationship, by my trust in you. But don't let me down. Don't disappoint me. Now that would bring embarrassment in the sense that if he casts all his whole lot of present happiness and future destiny on his relationship with God and trusting in God, and it doesn't work out, then then of course he's going to be embarrassed by that. But the the intermediate step between that trust and that embarrassment is that in some sense God will have let him down. And so his, his, his prayer really is, God, I'm going to trust you. Now don't let me down. Because I'm I'm casting everything upon you. Everything. My mind, I'm going to submit my mind to you so that you'll teach me how I should think about life. I'm not going to submit my mind to anyone else to teach me about life. I'm going to submit my mind to you so that you would teach me about life. I'm going to submit my heart to you, God. Not going to submit my heart to anyone else so that all of my affections, that which I value, that which I love, that which I hate, that which I think is good, that which I think is bad, I'm going to submit all of that to you. I'm going to submit my emotions to you and how I should feel about these things. So God, I'm, I'm, I'm laying my mind and my heart at your feet. I'm saying that, that you're the way to go here and, and there's no other. In fact, I'm giving you my strength. All that I do in my whole life, will be submitted to you. I'll do that which you call me to do. I'll do that which you say I should do. And I'll put all of my strength to that. In fact, I'll be depending upon your strength to strengthen me in order to live this life. So I submit to you all of my heart, all of my mind, all of my strength. God, I I submit to you my very soul. 
Everything there is about me from here until eternity and throughout is yours, God. And, and if you don't deliver, I'm sunk. That's in essence what he's saying. Don't let me down here. And so, so the question is, why would David even bring that up? Well, two reasons, really, as he expresses this in the psalm. There may be more, but at least these two. Number one, he knows that he faces enemies who could do him in. And secondly, he knows his own sin, which could do him in. Notice uh, the, the enemies portion of this in verse 2. Oh my God, I trust in you. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. And so if you're a reader of the Bible, especially a reader of the Psalms, you know that David had enemies all the time. And those enemies existed for various reasons not the least of which is because he was God's man. And so they came against him because of that. And so he says, don't let your enemies triumph or exalt uh, over me. Uh, Again, in verse 19, he says, consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. And so he says, okay, God, they hate me because of you, but I'm going to continue to live my life your way. I'm going to trust in you. Don't let me down. Don't, dis- don't bring me disappointment, please. I'm sinking everything in you. They knew that. And we, we know that too. We have this sense they're enemies, most especially of our souls. Um, Martin Luther classified them as the world, the flesh, and the devil. He classified them like that because that's the way the Bible classifies these enemies of our soul. The world, this system that's, 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 whose values and rewards and affirmations are, are different, opposed, if you will, to those values and rewards and affirmations which God brings to us. And so as we come to trust in God, we're saying, God, I, I submit my mind to you completely. I'm going to think your thoughts I'm going to understand life the way you teach me to understand life, not the way the world does. So my values are going to be different than the world. Um, That which I look to for affirmation will be different than the affirmation that the world gives. God, don't disappoint me. Don't, Don't bring me to a place where I look at the world and it looks way better. So be with me in this. Don't disappoint me. Show yourself to be great here. And the devil, to think, is he going to be stronger than God? I'm going to cast my lot with God, yet I know there's a wickedness, there's an evil that pervades this world. And so the question for me is, God, are you going to triumph over evil? If you don't, I'm sunk, so I'm putting my lot with you, so don't disappoint. So at the end of the day, I don't look back and go, oh, I should have sided with evil as opposed to with God. And my own flesh, that is the sinful inclinations I have in me, don't don't let them overtake me, God. I'm trusting you that you'll help me here, that you'll be my wisdom, that you'll be my my heart, that you'll be my strength in this. So God, be with me in this. Don't don't let these sinful inclinations overtake me. Um, And so he comes before God and says, God, reveal yourself to me in such a way that I'll I'll know that that I'll trust. And that's true for us. We know these enemies of our soul. We know our own sin. We wonder at times, is it really worth it? Is it really worth it to pray? Does anything really happen? Am I just being foolish when I pray? Am I being foolish when I, when I uh, live in such a way that I identify those who are marginal in our culture as opposed to the rich and famous? 
Is that foolish on my part? Is it foolish for me to give money so that others could live better? Is it foolish for me to give money so that others can hear this word of the gospel? Is that foolish? Is God really going to let us down in the midst of all of this? Do we really wonder? Do we have the assurance that God's plan, God's program, God's way is really going to win the day? Is that really the right way to go? Or at the end of life, am I going to realize that I've been foolish? Am I really foolish to, to, to work at not being selfish so that I can put the needs of others ahead of my own? Is that foolish? Is it foolish to forgive and not take revenge? Is it foolish to be compassionate for those in need, even though I might be taken advantage of? Is that foolish? How do we work out all these details? And we say, God, I'm trying to follow after you. Don't, don't, don't. Don't disappoint. Don't put me to, put me to shame. Is it really foolish to be faithful to one other person, a wife or a husband? For the course of your whole life? What do you sacrifice to do that? And is, is, that, is, it, is it foolish to stay in a marriage that's difficult because you've made a commitment, you want to honor God in the midst of this, and he says this is the way it ought to be? Is that, is that foolishness? Will God let us down in the midst of that? Or is his way the right way? There's this sense that, that the psalmist wants to know all of that. But you see, he has, this, he has this deep knowledge of who God is. Notice, he says, Verse 4, he says, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. You're my Savior. I wait for you all day long. Your way is truth. Your paths are good. Remember your mercy, O Lord, your steadfast love. He says, I know you as a God of mercy and steadfast love. Therefore, I know you'll forgive my sins. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, Oh, Lord, so he knows God to be good, God to be merciful, God to be truth, God to be his salvation. He knows that, there, he knows that there's forgiveness for his, his sins. That won't keep him from God. Good and upright is the Lord. He's good. He instructs sinners in their way, which is a good thing because I'm a sinner, so he's going to help me. He leads the humble in what is right. How can I not be humble as I stand before God? He teaches the humble his way. His way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. And then this verse. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. I collapse in front of that. It's just beyond my comprehension. To be one who has this intimate relationship, this intimate friendship, if you will, uh, with, with God. Gerhardus Voss not only has a pretty interesting first name, but uh, is known to be a great theologian. Preached a sermon on this text in 1902 uh, at Princeton. He writes, he said this, the secret or this friendship, the secret means the secret counsel. It is the intimate converse between friend and friend as known from human life where there is no reserve, but the thoughts and feelings of the heart are freely interchanged. And the notion of covenant here expresses the same idea. The covenant being conceived not as a formal contract for the specific purpose but as a communion in which life 
touches life and intertwines with life so that the two become mutually assimilated. Evidently, the psalmist recognized in his private intercourse with God the highest function of religion, the only thing that will completely satisfy the child of God. Notice how our passage expresses it. The secret intercourse of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will teach them his covenant. This idea of friendship, there's behind it in this, the nuance of the, the Hebrew expression, is that there's some secret relationship. Secret not in the sense that we might think, but secret in the sense that there are things about God that he reveals to those who are in covenant with him. They know him by way of his covenant as one friend would confide in another. David knew that. He knew God this well. But we need to realize that in the days in which David lived, the covenant had not yet been fully expressed. It it hasn't yet been fully expressed because we haven't reached the utter consummation of it when we'll see the Lord face to face and see everything come to be as it is to be. But but, but, but David knew it in a certain way, but, but yet still in what we call this old covenant... We know it even more intimately than he, for Jesus has come. And he had a, a friendship, this, this relationship with God, where he understood God in such a way that he knew, even in the midst of enemies, that God would triumph and he would triumph in God, that even in the midst of his sin, he would be forgiven and, and thus still belong to God. He knew that we should know it, frankly, better than even David did. Because you see, this is really the, the longing, the real longing of our souls. I read in our call to worship this morning from Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? In other words, because I belong to God, there's nothing can come against me really. And so verse 4, David writes, One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after. Now think about that. If you could ask one thing of God, what would it be? What would it be? If you could ask one thing of the Lord in the context of your own life. Here's what what David says that one thing was. This is poetry and all of that, and I get he probably had a point A, B, and C to this. But uh, one thing I've asked of the Lord that I'll seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. About what is David planning to inquire when he is in the temple of the Lord? My suspicion is he's going to inquire about God. Show me more. Tell me more. Who are you? confide in me. Tell me these things. Because he knows that, that he, when he knows that then all of his life will fit. All of his life will then find satisfaction because we only find that in God. That's really the longing of every heart. Now we suppress that truth and so we go after it in all kinds of ways that we shouldn't but in fact that's really the essence of the heart of a human being is to be that, to know, to gaze, to gaze upon God. Verse 8 of this passage, you've said seek my face. My heart says to you, your face Lord do I seek, hide not your face from me. Psalm uh, 63 David puts it like this. 
O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. He says, this is, this is the only thing that can satisfy my life, God. Is to know you. Is to know you. Psalm, uh, what is it, 84. Verse 10. The psalmist writes, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of, the, of wickedness. Um, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in, in you. This sense of really knowing God. So, if you came to God and you said, God, teach me your ways. God, be my friend. Tell me your secrets. What would he say? Well, according to Psalm 25, 14, he would reveal to you his covenant. He would reveal to you his promises. He would reveal to you what it is that he's promising to do, what he has done, and what he will do. That's what he will tell you. And so that's what we're going to be considering. Now you might ask the question, okay, what is a covenant then? Well, we can define it in a number of different ways. We, we know in some sense a covenant is, is, is that which draws people together. In this case, God and us, us and God. If it's a, God that God, it's a covenant that God has made, then it's that which draws him to us, amazingly, and us to him. So it is this relationship. It, it, it feels, it looks at times like a contract because we realize that, that in a covenant, uh, the parties to that covenant are stipulated. You, you identify them, you see who those people are who's in this covenant. Uh, there, are, there are stipulations in this covenant. This is what you are to do. This is what I'm going to do. There are sanctions in this covenant, meaning that if you don't do them, this will be the penalty to you. And, and, and there are signs to this covenant which show its value and show its permanence. For instance, when two people get married, we often refer to that as, as, as a covenant. And so if you go to a marriage ceremony, you'll find that the bride and groom are identified. You know who's entering into this covenant. It's usually because of the way they're dressed and their starry eyes and all of that. You can say, oh, that's the bride and groom. I got that figured out. If you can't do that, it's probably not a good wedding. Uh, but, um, and there are stipulations that are made, obviously, in the context of vows. Promises made. This is how I will treat you. This is how I will live in relationship to you. There are sanctions there because there are witnesses. And the, and the reason for gathering at a wedding, one of the reasons for gathering at a wedding is to be a witness to the vows that they make so that if they don't perform those vows, then it's up to you as a witness to their vows to go and to confront them in the midst of that. And the scripture gives sanctions and so forth for people who don't obey, don't follow their vows. There are signs in the midst of that to show that this is a permanent bond between the two of us. Rings are given as reminders. There's a celebration so that everybody remembers the celebration of, of this wedding. There's a license that's signed. It's filed away and there are witnesses and all of that. What's amazing is that God so condescends to come to us and makes covenant with, with us. One author has put it like this, that a covenant is a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. All right? Write that one down too. T 
take you a while to get a handle on it. It's a bond, meaning that this relationship binds the parties together. It makes relationship between the two. It binds the parties together. It defines their relationship, but it binds them together. It's a bond in blood. And, and when you talk about blood, all of a sudden you say the word blood in a crowd, people are going to go, ooh, right? It's going to kind of catch everybody's attention. We don't usually talk about blood. Uh, <clears throat> but a bond in blood meaning, the seriousness of it, meaning that if it is broken, someone dies. If it's broken, the one who breaks it dies. It's a bond in blood. There's a bit of a covenant. We'll get to this in about a month or so. But in Genesis, in chapter 15, there is a covenant being made with God and Abraham, who becomes Abraham. And it illustrates it, at least this point, I think well. You might remember in Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham, who becomes Abraham, comes to him and, and makes promises to him. In Genesis 15, he comes to affirm those promises because Abraham is wondering now if any of this is really going to come to fruition. Because he thought he was promised offspring and he doesn't have any. And so he, he, God comes to him and, and, and speaks to Abraham about how he's going to be his shield, that his protector, his great reward, his wealth, and all of that is going to be the benefactor of Abraham's life. And yet Abraham reminds God, hey, you promised me that I'm going to have, a, have offspring and I, I don't have any. And so God reiterates the promise and now he seals that by way of this covenant, a bond in blood sovereignly administered. And so basically it goes like this, verse 12. It says, the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on uh, Abraham, behold, dreadful and, and d- great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they'll be afflicted for 400 years. That's the Exodus experience, uh, the Egypt then Exodus. But I'll bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Now that expression, these pieces, is a reference to something I didn't read. And that reference is to the fact that God told Abraham to go get an animal, animals and, and birds, and, and cut them up. Right? Most likely, he would have taken the goats, I believe, that he was to get. Is that what he was to get? Um, but whatever. Well, a heifer, there you go. Uh, And a female goat and a ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon is what he was supposed to get. And so he probably would cut them like down this way, you know, so fold them, open them up across. You can picture that. You may not want to, but if you can picture that. uh, So you have, you know, one eye on one side and one eye on the other side. That kind of cut that way. Uh, And there they were. And it might seem odd, but remember, this is a bond. It's a binding Abraham and God together in such a way that it's a bond in blood, meaning that if either party, God or Abraham, uh, disobeys or doesn't complete the terms of the covenant, then that one would die. And so that's the significance of it. So when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a burning fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant. Now that little expression, made a covenant, is one that really could be translated and probably would be if we were in a different culture, that the Lord cut 
a covenant. Covenants were cut. The word made there really does mean to sever with a knife. To cut. He cut a covenant. Meaning, it's a bond, but it's in blood. The blood is shed. Something is cut to say that if either one of us disobeys or breaks this covenant, then we would die. The Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt uh, to the great river, the Euphrates, and so forth and so on. So God reiterates his promise to Abraham at that point. But, but it's a bond. It brings the parties together in blood, saying that if we break this, somebody dies. That's how serious it is. God pledges himself condescends, we could say, to pledge himself by way of this ritual to say that if I break this, I'll die. How serious is he about his promise? There's more to that, and we'll get to that when we get to it in a few weeks, but that sense of cutting a covenant. And it's sovereignly administered, meaning that it's something administered by God. There's no negotiation here. God is the one who sets the terms of the covenant. God is the one who brings the performance of the covenant as well. It's sovereignly, it's sovereignly administered. That's the solemnity of it, but that's the wonder of it as well. Now notice how David puts it. Last point. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And I'd like you to do this week is to ask this question. Do I really fear God? Not simply am I afraid of him, if I ever came into contact with him, what would happen to me, any of that. That's not the point. This word fear means to revere, honor. That is, do I bow before him? Am I one who has and does submit myself to him? Mind, heart, strength, Soul. Is that true for me? Am I one who says, God, you're God, I'm not. God, I submit my mind to you for you to teach me. God, I submit my heart to you so that that which you value, I value. That which you think is right, I think is right. That which you think is wrong, I think is wrong. I submit my heart to you. I submit my strength to you, my whole very being, my life my soul, my eternal destiny. I submit all of that to you because you are God. This is the person that I desire to be. That's the real question. If you find yourself saying no to that, then you're at a bit of a crossroads, aren't you? What do I do with this? Is it no and never? Or is no God but I should? Therefore, to confess that as sin before God because he's the one to whom we should submit, he is the one we should fear to confess that is sin and say, God, now work in me that I would be one to fear you. The reason I want you to work on that, the reason I want that to be your thought and your prayer this week is so that we all, you, me, would be those to whom God would make his covenant known so that the very essence of our being would be satisfied for we would know the friendship of God let's pray Father pray God for me for us that we would be those who fear you I know there's none of us here that would be on the bandwagon to say hey I fear God that's that 
we all know the struggle we have because of the sin that resides within us and the world that presents temptations to us and the evil one who comes to try to make all that look good but still Father I pray for me for us that we would be those who say yes I know that God is God and I know that I am not my mind is to be submitted to him my heart is to be submitted to him my strength is to be submitted to him my very soul submitted to him all of my life his that we would come and ask for forgiveness when that isn't the case and ask God that you would strengthen us work in us in such a way that we would fear you and then God we pray that you would make known to us your covenant how it is that you relate to us, we to you, how it is that you relate to your creation, your purpose for creation, and all of that, and and where all this is, is going. And that you would teach this in an unthinkable fashion, as a friend to a friend. Help us, we pray. Father, we'd be remiss as we gather not to mention those in particular needs. So we pray for the needs of those in our congregation. We pray for Melissa Foster as she faces surgery tomorrow in this situation of a torn lining in her aorta. That you would be with her. And those doctors, we pray for Clay Belcher and his family as he's with his mom as she faces what seem to be her last days. So, Father, I pray that you would be with Clay, enable him and his family to minister well to his mom and and they to each other in such a way that you're glorified in that. Thanks for the good report from Peggy Gabler's situation this week. Father, we're grateful for that. We know there are other needs, Father. So we pray that you would come and help bring healing, strength, understanding that we, your people, who trust in you would never, never be disappointed by that which you bring to us. So help us. This, God, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction.